so here we are, Psych 213. We have our um, red light, we're good to go. So today we're gonna start talking about the different disorders. That's what we're doing the rest of this semester. The cool part is we got through a lot of the housekeeping stuff already, and now we can spend time talking about disorders. So the first chapter we're covering now with disorders in it is chapter five. And chapter five is about stress and stress-related disorders. Some of these actually used to be in a category uh, called anxiety disorders. We still have that category, but we kind of separated these out in the DSM-5. Now you'll notice that our PowerPoint today says Prelude with V codes. I'm kind of adding a little bit of extra information in here that isn't really in your textbook, but I felt like it was warranted and needed. So I'm going to go ahead and explain what V codes are so that you have an idea of what that is today too. Any questions before we begin? Sound good? All right. And then when we're done with the recording, don't run out of here because I do have a couple housekeeping things I want to remind you of. So here we go. Let's first define stress. Remember, these are stress and stress-related disorders, so we need to kind of define stress. A stressor um, refers to any challenge or place, any challenge or demand placed on an organism. I got my tongue moving too fast here today, right? So, the stressor again refers to any challenge or demand. Something that pushes you creates, can be a stressor. It's something. So, it could be your alarm clock going off in the morning. It could be um, hunger. Could be a stressor. Something that pushes you, places a demand on you. This class could be a stressor. The physical and behavioral effects that a stressor produces are referred to as the stress response. So what you feel is stress, but what creates the stress is the stressor. So that's what we're really talking about. Now, what are some things that influence stress reactions? What are some things that kind of are there, if you will? Well, here's what influences stress reactions. Here you go, I'll let you go ahead and get signed in. You're welcome. The degree to which stressors are experienced as predictable or controllable plays a large role in both the reaction to them and future ones. So this stressor, if it's something that I can't anticipate, if it's something I know is coming, if it's something that I regularly have to deal with, then in some ways, it, I'm not going to say it becomes less stressful, but it becomes more manageable. If it's predictable and if it's controllable, then it doesn't seem to hit me the same way. Example I use in Psych 101, and I'll use it here, is that I like to pay my car insurance every year in one fell swoop. I don't like to have annoying bills coming every month. I, if I could take care of it all, I'd do it. When Sirius Radio came out, they had a lifetime subscription at the time, pay $500, never get another bill for the rest of your life. Ten years ago, I paid $500, I haven't gotten a Sirius Radio bill yet. And I'm good to go. Right? Which is sweet. I mean, I don't have to pay $12.95 or however much it is this month. Right? So, it's predictable. So my car insurance comes due every April. Well, I have multiple vehicles on that. I've got some recreational vehicles on that. I've got a camper. I've got a motorcycle. I've got a four-wheeler. I've got a tractor for the lawn. I've got two cars and a truck. So right there's like eight vehicles, right? Or seven vehicles or six vehicles. There's a lot of stuff on that insurance bill. It comes due, it's like, oh, 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 oh. but I know it's coming. 
It's manageable. I know it comes every April 20th. So April 20th is my date. I have to have money saved by. I also know my tax return is due on the 15th of April if I'm smart. And if I get a, a, you know, sometimes I get lucky and I get money back, then I can use that money from my tax return to pay my car insurance, right? And then I'm taken care of. And worst case scenario, I just make payments. But I'd like to have it out of the way. So it's predictable. It's controllable. I can do something about it so I can cope with that. It's still stressful, but it's not as stressful as your car breaks down on the way to class and you get a, you know, a big bill for a car repair that you were not anticipating. That's more stressful. Environmental context also plays a strong role in stress reactions. We know that you know, exposure to uncontrollable or inescapable stressors can actually impair future learning too. So if you're constantly bombarded by stressors you can't get away from, it even takes away from your ability to learn because you're so overwhelmed in your system. And we know that genetic and biological characteristics of the individual influence stress reactions. So again, some people cope with stress differently than others. Some seem to survive and, and thrive under stress while others struggle to just get by. So again, some of that's genetic. And I think the genetic and biological characteristics have to do with the uh, body's uh, autonomic uh, nervous system, the fight or flight response. Um, my wife, for example, tends to get a little bit more anxious than I do. Every once in a while she'll take an extra breath and I think her flight or flight system is kicking in too soon. She's feeling stress. I say, you know, what are you stressing about? What are you thinking about right now? And then she'll tell me. And so what it is is she thinks about something, her body starts to get into panic mode, she takes an extra breath because she thinks she needs oxygen to fight off the stressor. Does that kind of make sense? So that's a biological thing. And anxiety concerns run in her family. And remember, stress reactions used to be under anxiety disorders, but now they're separated out. So stress and health, what do we know? Well, we know that cardiovascular health is impacted by personality styles. And personality styles are related to stress. If you're someone who's a type A personality, you probably remember some of this from Psych 101. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But if you're someone that's more a type A personality, um, you tend to have this pattern of competitiveness, aggressiveness, hostility, time urgency, um, associated with greater risk of heart disease than the more relaxed, less hurried type B. I always think type A, think aggressive, assertive. Like you, you do it, either do it or get out of my way and let me do it. That's, that's a type A, multitasker, climbing to the top of the corporate ladder, whatever. Type B, think more, I like the music of Jimmy Buffett, think more Buffett, B Buffett. Relaxed, you're chilled on a beach somewhere with a corona and some parrot flying around, right? So again, a lot more relaxed. Well, here's the deal. Type A, twice the chances of coronary heart disease, twice the risk compared to type B. But type B, you're not going to make it very far. Maybe a beach bum for the rest of your life, not necessarily going to help you. So you have to find a balance. We know that particular components of the type A pattern, that anger and hostility, seem to be what's really tied in. You might go, well, why anger and hostility? Well, if I need stuff done and you're in my way, then you piss me off. <laughs> then I want, to, I want to get the stuff done, so move out of the way and let me do it. That's where that anger and hostility comes in. Am I going at an okay pace? 
feel like I'm wired this morning. So, stress and health. We know that prolonged or chronic stress can have a direct impact on the immune system. And individual histories with stress or trauma um, and environmental context also influences this impact. So again, what you carry in, if, again, if you have a stressful life and it always seems to be stressful, you never seem to cut a break, you know, you just seem to get on your feet, your knees get taken out from underneath you. We've all been there. Trust me, I know. I, I, I see that look in your face. I, I know, right? And that does have an impact, even in the environment that we're in. Like, you know, if you have housing concerns, and we know many students do, or food concerns or financial concerns. And we know that how you perceive the stressor matters. Again, as I already said, if you believe it's predictable, you believe it's predictable or controllable. I'm not saying that you have much control. But if you believe, if you perceive that you have some control, that can benefit you. And the intensity and frequency of the stressor can also impact future responses. So there's a little video link down here. I'll let you guys look at that on your own outside of class. I try to do that because I figure that's more enjoyable. I'll give you the content here. You know, some people say, well, get the content outside of there, outside of class, and then come in class and have fun things. Well, sorry, I'm kind of old school. I try to give you the content here, and now I'll let you enjoy the fun things at home. I, maybe I got it backwards, but... Anyway, so some health stress relationships. Let's talk about these, right? We know, again, that individuals differ in stress reactions for genetic, psychological, physiological reasons, no matter what the type. We know that events in the environment can take on different meanings for different people because of learning or your past experience. We know, and this is what's really interesting and why I have this on the slide, we know that there's even stressors that can produce what's called transgenerational effects. That believe it or not, there's some research that says that maternal stress can be transmitted in utero by inhibition of or change of gene expression in the developing offspring. So prenatally, a mother who experiences a lot of stress prenatally during prenatal development can actually change kind of the genetic outcome to a degree, I could say a huge degree, but maybe it heightens that autonomic arousal system. Maybe it strengthens the response in that, that area. And it's something to think about. And again, that, that lends itself to that heritability, you know, that seems to run in families, this ability to cope. Some folks just cope well with stress. Some families just cope differently with stress while their families just carry that stress through through their lifespan and apparently through their next generation's lifespan too. Which is kind of, it's a little ominous you think about that. So all of this stress talk, remember these are stress and stress-related disorders and as I said today is kind of like the prelude, the lead-in if you will, into chapter five. It all leads to this first diagnosis we're going to talk about of the semester. This is called adjustment disorders. So here's our definition, or here's our, our kind of talk about it. When ongoing stressors cause emotional disturbances and push people beyond their ability to cope effectively, then we can say they have an adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder is a time-limited disorder. This is a key. And I'm going to let you know something. The term adjustment disorder should be used frequently, but rarely is in diagnosis. Here's why. 
Adjustment disorder should be the first diagnosis a person's given when faced with a stressor in their life. Because it's a temporary condition, right? Well, the reason why it doesn't get labeled as, as that is because here's what insurance companies know. And yes, unfortunately, diagnoses are driven to a certain degree by payment. Insurance companies know that if these are time limited and they go away on their own, why should they pay for therapy? Think about that. If they're time limited and they go away on their own, then you don't need therapy. You just need time. So why waste the money? So while adjustment disorders should probably be used more commonly, they're not because oftentimes they're not reimbursable for insurance purposes. And yeah, I'm taking a pot shot at the insurance companies. So here we go. We know that adjustment disorders usually cause these kind of symptoms, um, sleep disturbances, irritability, some depression that is again temporary or some anxiety that again is temporary. As long as the stressor is present, the anxiety and depression is present. When the stressor goes away, within a short amount of time following that, then the adjustment disorder seems to go away. Best example I can give you is, think about this. You're, I, I, you make a mistake in your life. People do, right? You end up having to do jail time for it. Do you think that might be an adjustment? Do you think it might take some getting used to, to be incarcerated for a period of time? Like even if it was just a month, right? So you're just in jail for a month while you're waiting trial. Do you think that could cause some depression, anxiety, sleep concerns? Do you think it might be the focus of mental health counseling? Sure, right? But as soon as you're released from prison, would that stressor go away? Not instantly. Not instantly, but what about within six months? Do you think within six months you could readjust and get back on your feet? Yeah, so again, what I'm trying to get at is, it's an adjustment disorder, it's a temporary period of time. And once the stressor goes away, then it relinquishes on its own. So that's really the term that should be used. When I worked in the prison, we had many people come in and they had anxiety disorders, but we would label them with anxiety disorders and of course the first treatment was medication. So did they really have an anxiety disorder or were they looking for meds? Every case is different, I'm not gonna tell you, but again, it's something to think about. Some examples of adjustment disorders. Lengthy physical illness. Could that cause you to be under stress? Homelessness, what do, what do you think? Unemployment. Um, divorce, major family changes, grief reactions, right? All examples of something that would push you to your limit to cope with for at least a temporary period of time. Got it? Now let's say, let me run with my little example and show you how this could work. Let's say that you go to prison, right? Uh, again, I'm not, I know I'm picking on you today. I know you won't go to prison, but I'm just saying, right? Let's say that you go to prison, okay? You're incarcerated, and initially you have an adjustment disorder, but it's been years. And while the stressor now, you've finally gotten used to being incarcerated, but the depression and anxiety is still there, or maybe let's just say depression, this feeling of depression, of hopelessness, helplessness doesn't go away. Is it a, an adjustment disorder now, or is it something else? It's something else. So an adjustment disorder diagnosis could change into an anxiety disorder 
or into a mood disorder or into another disorder if the stressor goes away but the symptoms don't. Does that kind of make sense? So again, that's the key that we look for here. So let's take a look a little further. What are the characteristics of an adjustment disorder? Well, here we go. Maladaptive reaction. Notice what it says. Within three months of the onset of a stressor. So you've got a stressor and within three months you start to feel the effects of it. Again, stress-related, stress-caused. It's not just something random that happened. Something happened. Number two, distress in excess of normal reactions. So, you know, if you have a problem, you might have a week or two where you're struggling. This is a reaction that is in excess of normally. This is pushing you way beyond your means of ever coping. Like all hell seems to be breaking loose for you. Not a manifestation of a personality disorder. What does that mean? It means it can't be explained by something else. We'll talk about personality disorders later in this semester. They're more maladaptive long-term patterns. Some people cope with the world harshly throughout their whole life. That's a different story. And notice it says it must be specified if it's acute, if the disturbance lasts less than six months, if it's persistent, if it's chronic, the disturbance lasts for longer than six months. Now in the past, in the DSM-4 and on down, or 4TR and on down, before DSM-5 I should say, adjustment disorders were six months long, that's it. Now in DSM-5 they said as long as the stressor is continuing, you could still have an adjustment disorder. Because the idea is the disorder is caused by the stress. Remove the stress, the disorder drops away. So that kind of make sense? So it used to be only six months in length. Now it can be persistent, chronic, ongoing, if the stressor lasts longer than six months. The general criteria, again, here it is again, just written in a slightly different way. Within the last... Um, Within three months of a stressor, there's a marked distress in excess of what one would expect and doesn't meet the criteria for another disorder. More specifically, doesn't meet the criteria for antisocial um, or acute stress disorder, which we'll talk about next class, or post-traumatic stress disorder, or bereavement. And we'll talk about bereavement later today, too. And notice it says, does not last longer than six months unless the stressor also does. Now, once the stressor goes away, our belief is within six months, you should be able to return to normal. Does that make sense? So there's still a six-month number there, but it has to do with when the stressor ends. Within six months, you should be back on your feet. Now, notice it says only reactions that are in excess of normal may qualify for this. Right? And again, it could be mood, it could be a symptom of anxiety, disturbance of conduct, some combination of it. It appears to be relatively common. Notice a prevalence rate of between 5 to 20% in mental health outpatients. So 5 to, 25, or 5 to 20% of people showing up in mental health outpatient centers seem to be suffering from adjustment disorders. Right? And up to 50% in hospital psychiatric consultation settings. Because remember, maybe the stressor is some physical illness. Right? 
you find out that you have cancer, do you think that might drop you to your knees for a while? Right? Now, that actually might fall under another category, which we'll talk about today, too. Along with adults or among adults, suicide is a significant risk because, again, people feel overwhelmed, like they can't cope normally. And it's possible that what appears to be an adjustment disorder is actually an early phase or mild form of some other major illness. So again, that's where that six months comes in. Maybe you're really suffering from depression or an anxiety disorder. But you've never been in treatment before. And so you show up, if there's a stressor present, then we're gonna lean for adjustment disorder first. But let's say that it continues on and on and on and there's no stressor or the stressor goes away and now it continues to be there. Now maybe it is major depression. Maybe it is generalized anxiety disorder. Maybe it is some other kind of disorder. The types, and here's what the DSM-5, there's some overlapping types. So you would say adjustment disorder with depressed mood. Adjustment disorder with anxiety. Adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety and depressed mood. Adjustment disorder with disturbance of conduct. In other words, you're acting out, you're misbehaving, especially in children. Remember that now in DSM-5, we've combined adult and child disorders together. Used to be here were childhood disorders, here are adult disorders, all these categories. Now we've pulled children, for example, into the categories. So we talk about major depression, it includes children and adults, and same thing here. And then the next one, uh, adjustment disorder with mixed disturbance of emotions and conduct. So you've got behavioral acting out and emotional acting out, if you will. And then finally, the last one is adjustment disorder unspecified. Maybe we don't have enough information yet, but we can see a stressor is present and you're struggling. Make sense? Questions? Still going at a good pace? So here's what the printout looks like if you were to pull up the DSM-5 and see what it looks like. Remember that I told you it's kind of like a cookbook. It's more like a check sheet, if you will. So again, here is what you might see. I'm not going to read this all to you because, again, I have it in this slide for you to just kind of look at to see how it's structured. Um, and again, it's exactly what I've already told you. Notice this one part right here. It says significant impairment in social occupational or other important areas of functioning. If it's not causing you problems, it's not an adjustment disorder. It might be a stress reaction, it might be something you're coping with, but it's not a disorder. It has to cause significant impairment. That's when we get into the abnormal behavior. Now what's the difference? What's that line between what's normal reaction and abnormal? It's when it causes significant impairment for a period of time. So questions about this. All right. Bereavement. Let's talk a little bit about bereavement. Now, bereavement is recognized in the DSM-5, but not as a mental disorder. So bereavement's not considered a mental disorder, but it is under a category called other conditions that may be the focus of clinical attention. So we have a couple disorders that kind of fall there. They're not really disorders. You know, bereavement, you have the loss of a loved one. Let's say it's a, a loved one that you truly feel close to, right? You know, an, an immediate parent. Bereavement, do you think that might push you a little bit beyond your ability to cope for a while? 
Do you think that's a normal reaction to the loss of someone significant? So again, should this be a mental disorder? No. Could it be an area of focus for a clinician? Yeah, hell yeah. So that's why we have it here, right? And notice it says a category, this category of other conditions that may be the focus of clinical attention is a category that includes several reactions and disturbances that can develop in the absence of any disorder, but again, caused by some stressor or loss, at least in bereavement. Bereavement is a normal stress reaction considering the definition of normal for the individual. All right. Now keep in mind, every culture has different expectations on what you do as part of grieving or bereavement, right? Some cultures, if you lose a spouse, you're supposed to wear black for at least two years. To, and, you know, I guess in memory of, the, of the, you know, your, your partner. You know, in other cultures, we don't have some of those, but there's rituals that go along. So again, it still can be the area of focus something to talk about. Um, normal reactions to the death of a loved one, here's what we consider to be normal. Not lasting more than two months, although again there could be cultural variations, says normal bereavement can actually last in some cases from one to two years. Right? But if we go longer than two years now, why is it, again, I'm not, I, there's such variation, you can't just do, you have to do a case by case and really see, but if it's causing the person distress, if they're upset over the fact that they can't get over the loss, now it's more an area of concern than if they're just practicing their cultural expression of the loss. So that's what we take a look at. Notice it says bereavement is currently being considered as a future diagnosis. And it's currently under consideration since it results in significant psychological distress and impairment in some cases. And remember, bereavement is not an adjustment disorder, it's kind of a separate category because there is a normal reaction to this loss. So that's why it doesn't really fit as an adjustment disorder, but it also doesn't fit as a full-blown disorder. It's not sure where it's at right now. And, and the DSM, the APA I should say, um, in their diagnostic and statistical manual will do this at times. They'll put an area of concern in, test it to see if maybe it's appropriate for future you know, diagnosis, whether it should be its own category or not. The nature of stressors, we know that stressors can be a single event or a series of events, past or current stress, events that only affect the individual or they could be broader events like 9-11. And they are distressing and can be considered traumatic or even non-traumatic. So there's a lot of variations when we talk about stress reactions and our responses to stress. Still doing good? Okay. So let's talk. Now there is another category that's kind of similar. Uh, not really, but I do want to kind of make some clarifications. So, there's a category called psychophysiological disorders. Psycho, and let's break down that word, think what it says, psychophysiological disorders. They're physical disorders, mental conditions that are made worse by psychological factors, depression or anxiety. So you have maybe irritable bowel syndrome. Could that be made worse by stress? That's not an adjustment disorder. It's a psychophysiological disorder. There's a physical manifestation 
and it's being exacerbated or made worse because of psychological symptoms. So that's a little different. Notice that adjustment disorders can be depression, anxiety, or conduct abnormalities that result from another medical condition, but they're not, they're not causing it. So adjustment disorders could result from a medical condition, psychophysiological disorders, or medical conditions caused by stress. So it's almost opposites here. Does that kind of make clear, or did I kind of lose you? I see a little puzzled look. Okay, so adjustment disorders, right, can come from having a medical disorder. Psychophysiological disorders are medical disorders that are caused by stress. or you're exacerbating, you're making it worse through your anxiety. Does that kind of make sense? So they're kind of, they're kind of reversed in a little bit. There's a little, it really is. It's, they're the same, end up, they end up still somewhere in suffering and they have a medical concern, but the one, the medical concern caused the anxiousness or the anxiety or depression. The other one, the depression or anxiety made worse the medical concern. So in some ways, they're kind of two sides of the same coin but they are different. So what about treatment? You know, what, is, what kind of treatment will we use for this? Well, guess what? We know that individuals do need treatment when they have an adjustment disorder, regardless of what an insurance company might say, whether they're gonna pay for it or not, irrelevant. We know that people need treatment to reduce suffering, to enhance functioning, and to prevent the disorder from leading to a more chronic or severe condition. But remember, with adjustment disorders, the key is that there's a stressor present. So the first thing I need to do is do what? Get rid of the stressor, right? Somehow find a way to either cope with the stressor and, and, and you know, if it's in jail. People, for example, have been incarcerated. I worked in a state prison. There are people who came to jail for multiple years. For the first six months, they struggled, and then they got, their, they got used to the routine, and then they, I hate to say it this way, but they kind of fell right in line and never had any more problems. Adjustment disorder went away. They didn't have major depression or anxiety. I'm not saying they're happy about jail, but they found a way to cope. The adjust, you know, six months, the adjustment disorder relinquished. So to reduce or in some way remove the stressor. I might not be able to get rid of it all the way, but if I can help you cope with it or adjust with it, then that's gonna be start one in the treatment. The other things we can do is supportive therapy. Talk therapy. Support you along their way so that you know, we can talk about what's going on. Brief, goal-directed psychotherapy. And it's gonna be brief. Psychotherapy, you might see your therapist maybe once a month, maybe once every two weeks, depending upon the stressor more often than that. But again, it should be brief because as soon as the stressor goes away, the treatment probably isn't going to be necessary anymore. In fact, you know, what we know is, take a look at this, 50% of patients treated resolve in one month after the stressor has dissipated. So it doesn't take six months to get back on your feet after the stressor is gone. Within one month, you could be back on your feet. So treatment is necessary. We know that most people recover with or without treatment. That's why insurance companies don't pay. Well, you're gonna get better on your own. Why do we have to take the time? Well, because we can speed it up. We can hasten it, right? 
And we may use medication for some symptoms. Again, maybe I put you on a, on a low dose of a temporary anxiety disorder or anxiety med to try to help you with the anxiety related to the adjustment disorder. Or maybe I give you, you know, a, a medication to take away some of the minor symptoms of depression just to help you cope while you're getting you know, through the stressor. So can it make sense? So questions about any of that? All right. So that's adjustment disorders. That's the first disorder we were going to talk about this semester. I figure like it's a good place to start out. It's my opinion. Now let's talk about, we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk about something called V codes. And V codes are a little odd term, but I'm, uh, they're mostly used in medical situations. Um, but again, I think that we need to talk about them because you may see them if you're ever, like if you're going into healthcare or maybe you have a family member who's receiving some kind of treatment, you might see a V code listed and you might want to know what the hell that means. So here it is. V codes are used to describe encounters when a specific disease or injury does not describe the diagnosis or problem. So I'll read through this and then we'll talk about what it means. V codes are either used as a first listed primary or secondary code depending upon the situation and V codes allow clinicians to indicate other conditions that may be the focus of clinical attention or may affect diagnosis course, prognosis or treatment of a mental disorder. So let me give you an example of what a V code is kind of, pregnancy. Is pregnancy a mental health problem? Sometimes. No, 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 sometimes. Can it add to your mental health con concerns? If you were pregnant, does it affect treatment options if you have a mental health concern? Right? Because of medication, right? If you're on medication that maybe creates um, birth defects, well, we don't want that. So is it a problem that a clinician should be aware of? So should it be listed somewhere? And of course, the answer is yes. Then we use a V code. It's not a disorder. It's an issue. I don't know if I want to say catch-all. There's four times when we can use V codes, and I think it's on the next slide. Let me see. Yep, here they are, right? So here we go. These are the four times when we use them, and then we'll talk more. I'll give you examples. The rest of this is all about V codes. So there are primary, four primary situations that V codes are used for. Number one, when a person who is not currently sick or injured but encounters the healthcare system for a specific reason. You're a nurse, you're using universal precautions, your glove rips and blood gets on you, and you go to the doctor because you're not sure if you're infected or not. Make sense? But we need to pay attention to this. Right? So again, you're not currently sick or injured, but you've come into the healthcare system and there may be a concern. Number two, when persons with a resolving injury or disease or a chronic condition requires aftercare for that condition. So again, these are mainly medical, but you can see how they could impact mental health treatment. So you just had surgery, right? And maybe you have sutures or you, you've got dressing changes. You've got needs that need to be taken care of that are going to push you maybe beyond your ability to deal with it. Maybe you had 
a car accident. Man, I'm picking on you all day today. You're in jail in a car accident. Jeez, I'm nasty, right? Just pick on somebody else. No, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's say you're in a car accident and there needed to be some reconstructive surgery. Do you think that might be something we need to pay attention to that could lead to something else? Number three, in circumstances that influences a person's health status, but these circumstances themselves are not a current injury or illness. Maybe you're HIV positive. You don't have full-blown AIDS, but you are HIV positive. Is that something we should pay attention to? Might that be an area that you need to focus on of clinical attention? Just like bereavement or something else, right? And then finally, we use V-codes for newborns to indicate their birth status. And really, what the, the V stands for in kind of a strange sort of way is think preventative. The V in preventative. So these are to prevent things from getting worse, to pay attention. Pregnancy and treatment. We're not going to do ECT on someone who's depressed if they're pregnant. You know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. So again, there are other conditions or problems that may be the focus of clinical attention. They could just be problems with living, but they could create stressors which could lead to something else. But they're not a mental health problem. And that's why many abnormal psych classes won't even talk about V-codes, but I feel like it's necessary because, again, Psychology and healthcare are so intertwined, I, I, don't think, I don't think you can ignore them or that overplay. So that's why I have them here. So just remember the V in V code stands for preventative. A patient does not have to have an injury or disease. They may just be coming in to prevent something from happening or getting worse. All right. Consider a V-code when the problem is uh, the focus of treatment with no mental disorder. A client has a mental disorder, but it's unrelated to the problem. Like you could have uh, major depression, but that's not why you're here today because today we're here for employment difficulties. That's a V-code, something that could affect treatment. Or the client has a mental disorder related to the problem which is sufficiently severe to warrant special clinical attention. Again, a V-code is just a, hey, pay attention to this. This may be important. So what are some examples of V-codes? Here we go. So I'm just going to show you over the next couple slides some of the examples so you have an idea of what we're talking about. Sound good? Okay. So. Number one, relational kinds of problems. So here's a category of V-codes that could show up. You might see them listed somewhere. Um, relational problems related to a mental disorder or another medical condition. Parent-child relational problems, where the parent and the child aren't getting along. That could be the focus of counseling. It could lead to depression or anxiety or a conduct disorder, but it's not necessarily one by itself. Partner relational problems, sibling relational problems, or just relational problems not otherwise specified. That's what NOS stands for, not otherwise specified. So people are having problems coping, interacting with others. We can't specifically say why. Or NEC, not elsewhere classified. 
So when you see NEC, not elsewhere classified, some other label doesn't better identify this or not otherwise specify. There's no more data than I currently have. So again, relational issues. Make sense? Um, some of the changes in terminology, I'll just go a little further on the NOS and NC, NEC. Um, NOS, not otherwise specified, has been used as a catch-all for patients who didn't fit the more specific categories. And believe it or not, NOS is not used anymore as of DSM-5. But you may still see it in a chart and some old clinicians may still use NOS, not otherwise specified. Now, there's an option for designating not elsewhere classified, which typically includes a list of specifiers as to why the patient's condition doesn't meet a more specific disorder. So instead of just a catch-all, now we say not elsewhere classified and here's why. Because they don't show this, 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 or this. They don't fit one of the categories. The other way was just kind of a, oh, uh, relational problems not otherwise specified, we'll just throw you in there. Now it's not elsewhere classified because of blah, blah, blah. Notice it says the phrase general medical condition is replaced in DSM-5 with another medical condition. Because again, if you have a mental health concern, then this would be another medical condition. Psychiatry is a medical profession. Mental health is a medical disorder in some ways, at least according to the medical model, which is what this is based on. Some problems related to abuse or neglect. Again, these are not mental health problems, but they could be problems to your mental health. So physical abuse of a child. You're physically abusing your child, that's a V code. What the hell's going on? We can't say that you're, why you're abusing, we need to go deeper, right? Sexual abuse of a child, is it because you have pedophilic disorder or is it just something else going on? What, what's, what's the issue? We don't have enough information, V-code, we, we need to be aware. Neglect of a child. Maybe you're neglecting your child because your mental health concerns are out of control or your medical problems are out of control. You can see where this would be a V-code but not necessarily a diagnosis. Physical abuse of an adult, maybe the elderly. Maybe you're not taking care of your partner or your, or your parents. Or sexual abuse of an adult, right? Again, why are you doing these behaviors? The area of focus, but not necessarily a mental health concern. Well, I shouldn't say that. Not necessarily a mental health diagnosis, right? Additional concerns, non-compliance with treatment. Do you think that might be important to know? Especially if you're someone who's schizophrenic, right? So you've got schizophrenia or a psychosis disorder, you're not compliant with your medication. That probably should be an area that a clinician should be aware of. Malingering, malingering means to fake or feign an illness, usually for some purpose. Some malingering, think manipulating in some ways. That's what you're trying to do. Adult antisocial behavior that does not meet antisocial personality disorder. So um, back to my example, you end up in jail 
but that's not your normal pattern. You're not someone who's a career recidivist where you're going back and forth. This is the first time that you've done something like this and we don't know the reason or, or the cause or whatever, right? Maybe you uh, embezzled money from a business. You, you took money when you shouldn't have taken it. Again, is that a mental health concern? Maybe, maybe not, but we don't have enough information on that, but it is definitely a concern to pay attention to. Um, so adult antisocial behavior. Um, child or adolescent adult, or child or adolescent antisocial behavior. Again, that doesn't meet the personality disorder criteria, but it does seem to be anti-society views. Borderline intellectual functioning. This means you don't have intellectual disability, but you're also below normal IQ. So again, you're, you're not, we wouldn't say that you're in the intellectual disability categories, but you're close. You're on the borderline. Age-related cognitive decline. You're 85 years old and you have some senility. Do you think that might be important to know? But is it a mental health concern? Maybe a concern, but not a diagnosis. And then the last one is bereavement. Yes, bereavement falls under V codes. Now, it may someday, it might not be there. It might have its own category, but right now, we kind of have it there. Because it, again, it's, it's, a, it's a stressor in some ways that you're under. And then the final slide to talk about V-codes, right? Occupational problems. Maybe you're being displaced, your company's downsizing, and not through any fault of your own, you're headed out to the street, right? Maybe you have an academic problem, and maybe it's not a learning disability, maybe it's something else going on. Or maybe it's caused by a medication, right? You're taking a med that causes you to not be able to think or stay awake in class, and so that's creating academic problems. Again, it's, it's an area of concern we need to pay attention to, prevent. Remember, prevention. Identity problems. Maybe you're struggling with your identity, defining who you are. You know, in high school, I used to use the example, you know, maybe you're goth, maybe you're jock, maybe you don't know where you fit in in that social schema. Maybe it has to do with gender identity. A religious or spiritual problem. Maybe you're struggling with your religious beliefs. Acculturation problem. Maybe you're having trouble adjusting to a new culture. Maybe, okay, you get a new job, an electric, you end up... Uh, I don't know, moving to Japan. M might it take you a while to adjust, right? I'm not saying that you wouldn't be excited about the move, but it's still gonna take you a while to adjust to the culture. We see that here, you know, immigrants that come to this country and then it takes them a while to get, you know, acclimated to their environment. Does the community accept them? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, when I grew up, um, grew up in a real little town in Western Pennsylvania, maybe 1,500 people. And I remember uh, when I was in school, uh, a group came from, um, man, I can't even remember now. Um, but they, they had uh, immigrated. Um, they had escaped uh, their war-torn country. I can't remember which country. It was an Asian um, country. Anyway, they came to our little town to try to fit in. Well, not that my town was nasty or mean or rude, but there were no minorities in our town. It was a blue-collar, Caucasian, European-American settlement of 
you know, individuals from Italy and, and, you know, Poland and just a lot of different kind of, but there wasn't, no one with an Asian kind of descent was there. So this, camp, this you know, family came in, our church sponsored them. They stayed there maybe a month or two. They just couldn't adapt. I mean, there was, the, the barrier was so great, I think. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think maybe the town would have, you know, maybe it, we all would have learned from that experience, but we didn't get that opportunity. And then the last one is phase of life problem. What about someone going through a midlife crisis? Again, that's not a mental health diagnosis, but it could be a concern. Um, someone who's you know, 50 years old but still wants to believe they're 25 or, or whatever. Or coping with becoming 50. You know, so again, something that we might see. So any questions about adjustment disorder or V-codes? That was kind of the lead-in. It was kind of the prelude, if you will. And actually, we didn't do too bad. We're about five minutes early. I never let you guys out of class early. So today, well, I might actually do that. How about that? So thank you for listening. And uh, listen for the next recording, next class. <laughs>